Well, our sermon text is uh, in Revelation 22. It's Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. It's the last part of the book. We're finishing up, Lord willing, this great book of Revelation this morning. And so if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for the Word of God as we read the Word of God this morning. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Give ear to the reading of God's holy Word. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, uh, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this morning, Lord willing, again, we're going to finish up our study in the book of Revelation. We've taken uh, just about a year and a half by my count to get through this book. It doesn't feel like it's been that long to me. I hope it doesn't feel that long uh, to you. And I, honestly, having getting to the end of the book, I, I kind of feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface of, of what's in this uh, great last book of Scripture. And so... I hope that this will be a beginning for you and me in this book and not an ending, that you'll take what we've learned and and seen together and be encouraged to keep reading it with uh, profit to your souls and your faith. Um, In in a lot of ways, uh, I said last time, last Sunday, we looked at the first five verses of the chapter, and I said, you know, we saw that it quotes the first few chapters of Genesis or alludes to it in many ways. And so in a lot of ways, in chapter 22, the whole Bible comes full circle, well, in another way, the, the text we're looking at this morning uh, repeats a lot of the things we read in Revelation chapter 1. And so not only does the whole Bible come full circle, but here at Revelation 22, the whole book itself of Revelation also comes 
full circle. There's a number of parallels between the first and last chapters of this book. A lot of what is said in the opening chapter of Revelation in chapter 1 is actually repeated almost word for word in this chapter uh, as well. In Revelation 1 verse 1, the first verse of the entire book, uh, John writes this. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Well, here in verse 6 of our chapter, in our text, listen to the same words. He says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, here it is, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So he's repeating what he said in the first verse of the entire book. Now we're hearing it again at the end to wrap the whole thing up. So we're reminded that what we read about here in Revelation uh, is a revelation or a revealing or an unveiling of Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's what this book is about. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done, what he is doing even now, and what he will do even on that last day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. But it's not just about Jesus. It's also from Jesus. He is the one who gave this revelation to John. And so this final book of the Bible, this final book, Revelation, is not just given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit like the rest of Scripture is, but in a unique sense, Revelation is also given uh, directly by Jesus Christ himself. It was given to him from the Father to give to us as his church. And what did he do? He says he sent his angel to John to reveal it uh, to us and make it known uh, to him, to us uh, through him. That's why in verse 6, John says, he hears these words. It says, these words are what? They're trustworthy and true. And why are they trustworthy and true? Because these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us in Scripture. Everything that you and I read here, as in all the rest of the Bible, is worthy of our utmost attention. Everything we read here and in the rest of Scripture is worthy of our faith and worthy of our practice and obedience. It's all there for those things. And I think also here in this text, and in that first verse there in verse 6, we're also reminded not just that it's the Word of God, but we're reminded of the urgency of the message of the book of Revelation. Because why? In both the first, in both the first and last chapters of the book, what are we told there? We're told that these things that we're reading about were given, how? In verse 6, to show his servants what must soon take place. This book is not just about the far off and the end of history that may be, as far as we know, long after we are gone and with the Lord. It's a very uh, relevant revelation. It's a very relevant book. It's a very timely book. The message of Revelation is as timely and urgent as it has ever been or ever will be. This applies to us and our generation as much in many ways as it ever has to the church before our day. Now in John's day, as we, if you were here through most of this study, which has been you know, a year and a half or whatnot, uh, you might know that much of what's written here has some reference to the year A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the earthly temple. Now, some almost make the whole book just about that. In, in, in doing that, what you do is you kind of make the book not very relevant to us in our day, and that would be a mistake. The significance of this book and even of the things that dealt exactly with that uh, still have significance to us as well in our own day and every generation that 
uh, serves the Lord after us as well. Revelation reminds us, among other things, again and again, that the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning over all things even now. In some ways, you could say that's the, that's the message of Revelation. He's reigning now. He's making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet now. He is ruling over all things now. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is riding forth, to use the, the language of Revelation, conquering and to conquer, even now. He's even now gathering and defending his church through the preaching of his gospel. He's even now judging his enemies. Now, not just later, although that will be the ultimate judgment. Jesus Christ judges his enemies and the enemies of his church from the right hand of God in this life as well as at the end. And all of those judgments, all those things where Jesus' reign is shown in this text point us forward to that last great day when the Lord Jesus Christ, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and to consummate his kingdom his kingdom of glory with his saints forever in heaven. That's Revelation. That's the whole book. And what we're at, what some writers, you know, sometimes we, we like to outline a book and that's always helpful. Many writers call this particular passage, they call it the epilogue of the book. You know, a prologue is what's written at the beginning. You could say chapter one in many ways is the prologue. It sets the stage for what you were going to read. And this is the epilogue, so to speak. It, it wraps up everything that is in the book. And so, you know, it's often been said, in, if you've ever had a public speaking class, if you've ever had a preaching class, they say that the thing to do is to tell the people what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're telling them, and then tell them what you told them. That's what Revelation 22 is doing. Revelation 1, the prologue, tells us what's going to, what's going to go on in the rest of the book. Then the body of the book, you know, chapters 2 to 21, so to speak, tell us the, the main message. And then here in chapter 22, it kind of wraps the whole thing up with a bow and repeats a lot of the main themes that we looked at throughout the book. I've, I've had uh, the privilege of looking at a number of books and things to help me along in my studies. Nothing I say here is original by any stretch, but uh, there's one book by Dr. Vern Poitras called The Returning King. I recommend it to you if you find those things helpful. I found his book helpful as well as Dr. Hendrickson's. But in his book, The Returning King, he sums up our text in the following way. He says, the central visionary part of Revelation ends with Revelation 22, verse 5, which we looked at last Sunday. Revelation now concludes with promise, exhortation, and confirmation in order to drive home to our hearts the message of the visions and to stir up hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus in verse 20. That's, that's what this epilogue is meant to do, drive the rest of what we've read home and to increase and stir up our hope for the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant to us that we might have the message of this great book and all of Scripture really driven home into our hearts once again even this morning. May he by his grace stir us up, stir up our hope for the coming and return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And may we learn to say with John in verse 20, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So the first thing I think we should notice in this text, uh, I found this text really interesting but hard to outline. And so if I'm jumping around from part to part in the sermon, I apologize ahead of time. But the first thing I thought was noteworthy was there's a threefold repetition throughout the text of Jesus' words uh, when he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Almost word for word, three times in our text, verse 7 at the beginning, verse 12 in the middle, and then in verse 20 he says, Surely I am coming soon. 
Sounds like he's trying to get through a message to us in some way in this passage. You know what they say about repetition? If somebody repeats something, it must be important. Uh, And that goes even more so in the Bible. If the Bible says something more than once, more than twice, even three times, uh, it should get our attention. Anything God says in his word, if it even says it once, is worthy of our undivided attention. But when God repeats something three times in his word, especially in this sort of a space, uh, we should all sit up and pay close attention to what uh, what he is saying. And I think you can tell just by the where those verses are that the text that we're looking at this morning is practically arranged or outlined around those three things, around those three times when Jesus said he's coming soon. It's the beginning, the middle, and just about there at, at the end. Uh, it may not always feel soon to us, but... But it is. It, it may seem to us, especially if if we were among the suffering church in different places of the world, we might think, he's not coming soon enough. But what does Jesus say? Behold. You know, the Bible uses that word a lot, and sometimes we, you and I might hear that word and read it and kind of just skim across it on the page. But behold is something that's meant to get our attention. He's saying, behold, look here, I'm coming soon. It may not feel soon, it may not seem soon, but I'm coming soon. Now, that coming soon might be a coming in temporal judgment, can it? Him coming soon isn't just about, even if it's primarily about his return in glory, but sometimes he comes in an act of temporal judgment in this life. Sometimes he comes in judgment upon an individual, upon a nation, upon a place. In the Bible, in fact, we just read about one recently in the book of Exodus. What did did God do? He visited judgment upon Egypt for their treatment of his people. He visited judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. That was, a, in a sense, a coming of the Lord in judgment. He visited judgment upon Babylon. And he even visited judgment, as we've seen in A.D. 70, on Jerusalem itself. Those were comings of the Lord in judgment. They weren't his coming in glory. They weren't his bodily return, as we will do on the last day. But those were all comings of the Lord in judgment. And so... When Jesus does this, when our Lord does this, he is both defending his church as well as judging his enemies. He is judging those who would persecute his church who are the apple of his eye. When his saints cry out in Revelation 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 6.10. What was God's answer? I've said this before. Did God say, oh, you've got the wrong idea. I don't do that. That's That was the Old Testament God of anger and wrath and judgment. No. He tells them to rest a little longer until it was the time. In other words, they cried out to God for relief. They cried out to God to avenge their blood uh, on those who dwell on the earth, those who, who oppose the gospel. And God's message to them in return was, wait. It's coming in due time. Rest and wait and see what happens. God will judge. He will defend his church in due time. And so you and I in our day must uh, take heed and remember these things as well. When we see our brothers and sisters around the world, even in our own country, maybe in not too, too distant future, when we see them being violently persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, or if we ourselves come to suffer something similar, uh, let us cry out to God in faith, in prayer, insisting and trusting that our Lord will bring good to us out of it. He makes all things work together for our good. And also trusting that God will judge justly in his due time. God will do what he sees fit by his wisdom and kindness to do. Sometimes, what does he do? 
We've said this before and seen it in Scripture before. Sometimes God sends uh, grace. Sometimes he converts the enemies of his church, like he did the Apostle Paul. He used to be Saul of Tarsus. He used to want to destroy the church, but God had mercy upon him. God saved him wonderfully and made him the greatest missionary in the history of humanity. The greatest evangelist that we know of was the Apostle Paul with no smartphones, no airplanes, no anything. And God used his gospel through Paul to do great things. Sometimes he sends judgment like he did on Herod, who didn't give glory to God and was struck down in the middle of a speech in the book of Acts. And so let the wicked rulers of this world and others who would shed the blood of God's saints be warned that God will not be mocked. We should trust that God will not be mocked. Let them repent of their wickedness, as Psalm 2 says, let them kiss the Son, lest he be angry and they perish in the way. That's about Jesus Christ, seated at God's right hand, defending his church. And what does it say? For his wrath... Psalm 2, verse 12, his wrath is quickly kindled. The wrath of Jesus Christ against those who would hurt his church is quickly kindled. You know, we should not be surprised if the Lord Jesus Christ brings judgments in the different forms that we see in Revelation, war and pestilence and famine or plague. He brings those things on this earth. They are not accidents. And sometimes he brings those things as judgments, as judgments on this on this earth, those places that shed the blood of the righteous, those of Jesus Christ, his followers, sometimes God brings those things in response to those who persecute those who testify to the gospel of Christ. And Now, the gospel must be preached. The wicked must be warned to repent of their wicked ways and unbelief. Not only that God might relent and show mercy as he did. Remember the book of Jonah? What did Jonah do? Jonah came into, you know, what is it, a third of the way into the city after God finally got him there when he tried not to go. And what was his message? He preached judgment. He wasn't preaching, you know, a, a, a happy, clappy message. He wouldn't say, God's going to destroy this place. And what happened? God relented. He had mercy upon Nineveh, and Jonah wasn't very happy about it. God may relent and show mercy when these places and, and rulers and whatnot repent of their treatment of his people and hating the, the, uh, the cross of Christ. But more importantly, the gospel must be preached in all these places they, that the people there might repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So they might not be condemned on that great day of God's just judgment when Christ returns in glory. All of Christ's comings in judgment throughout history are foreshadowings of the return of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. Every time you see God acting in judgment in the scriptures or in history, we should be reminded that one day Jesus Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And we should look forward to and hasten that great day. Well, the second thing in our text is it tells us, John is told there not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The, the relevance of this book and its message for our day, the urgency of this book is also emphasized by that very command. In verse 10, John says, and he said to me, this angel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is what? Near. That word keeps popping up in our text. Jesus is coming soon. The time is near. And why is he not to seal it up? Because the time is near. He gives him the reason for it. He says, you know, if you might remember the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel was given visions, but he was told the exact opposite. He was told... Daniel 12, 4, it says, But you, Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. In his day, in Daniel's day, the fulfillment of those things was far off. It wasn't near. It was a long time after his day, and so God told him to seal it up. You're not going to understand these things fully now, but later on these things will be made known and made to be understood. So they were sealed up later until the time of their fulfillment, but not revelation, not what John is given here in our book. It must not be sealed up for some distant time in the far-off future, but it says, for the time is near. This urgency of the message of the book of Revelation and the gospel throughout the Bible uh, is also brought to bear upon us in verses 11 through 15. Look at, look there, 11 through 15. There John says, he is told, Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter into the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Or lies. Because the time is near and our Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon, let those who are hardened in their sin, in a sense it's saying, let them who are hardened in their sin and unbelief and rejection of Christ continue in their sin and unbelief. And let the righteous and holy persevere in faith. That's a hard thing to hear. Maybe when you heard that or were reading along with it, you said, wow, that sounds, that sounds really harsh. But what, what is what is the point? The point is this message is, ur- is urgent. The gospel is urgent. It's not something to be ignored or put off or put aside. You know, in our text, as in all of Scripture, two roads are placed before you here. If you're still in your sins and yet outside of Christ, it's it's telling you you have to choose. Are you outside of Christ and and so going on in evil and uncleanness and and filthiness, as, as our text says and. What, it's a warning, isn't it? If you continue in sin and unbelief, you will be left where? Outside the city, unable to enter into the gates. Outside of the New Jerusalem, banned and barred from heaven and the tree of life. What does he say in verse 15? He says, outside, outside the city, outside are the dogs, you know, the unclean, the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood or lies. You know, sorcerers are those who practice false religion and divination. They're going to be outside. You know, those things actually still happen. People still do those things even in our country today. They'll be outside. They will be shut out of heaven. The sexually immoral will be shut out of heaven. The Bible says it so many times it's almost hard to count it. How many in our day does this describe, even in the church today, that fit that description? That should not be. And how many churches and pastors tell those people like that, that all is well with their souls? You're fine. God doesn't care about that stuff anymore. They need to read the book of Revelation and not detract or add to it. 
The Bible tells them they have to, unless they, unless they too repent, they too shall perish. That's what the, what the Bible says here in our text. Murderers and idolaters. You and I might scarcely think to put those two things on the same level, but the Bible does. Both will likewise perish unless they repent. The end of unrepentant murderers and unrepentant worshipers of false gods will be condemnation in hell outside of heaven. Last but not least, it says everyone who loves and practices falsehood or lying. Liars. What is, what is going to be the end of liars? Revelation 21.8 says that, that all liars, it says their portion will be in the lake of, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. How many of us take lying lightly in our day? How many of us think of lying as an awful sin? And yet the Bible is very serious about it. It's not just, it's not just murderers who are going to be in hell. Liars are going to be in hell forever. How many imagine that the holy God who sees all things and judges justly doesn't reserve wrath for that sin as well? But he does. Christians should not be liars. Are, are you a Christian this morning? I hope and pray you all are. You must not be a liar. Falsehood should not be something that comes from your lips on a regular basis. The devil himself, what does the Bible call the devil himself? The father of lies. Whose family resemblance are you showing if you're a liar? Not Jesus, whose words are faithful and true, but the devil himself. The devil himself. Paul in Ephesians 4.25 says to, to believers, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We should be characterized by speaking the truth in love, not, not falsehood. Now, there's also a promise of mercy in our text, isn't there? There's a promise of mercy to everyone who will repent and believe in Christ. Just as there's a threefold repetition of the words of Christ saying he's going to come quickly, that he's coming soon, there's also a threefold exhortation to come in verse 17 where John says, the spirit and the bride say come. The bride is the church. The spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Saved by grace, not by works. Taking the water of life without price. Even, even here, just about at the very end of the Bible itself, there's a promise of mercy to all who will repent and believe. You know, Revelation 22, if I can mix my metaphors, it's kind of like the 11th hour of the Bible. It's right there at the end and right there at the end. Even in the midst of these, these things about judgment, God promises mercy to those who will repent and believe. The one who desires is, is bidden to come and take the water of life without price. That's the promise of grace and salvation to all who will turn to Christ by faith. Even in the earlier part, in verse 14, we're told that those who wash their robes in the blood of Christ will have the right to the tree of life. How do you wash your robe? By trying harder? No, you wash your robe in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Only his blood atones for our sins. Well, John doesn't just tell, isn't just told to, to, to not seal up the words of this prophecy. He's also told uh, to, about keeping the words of this prophecy. Here in our text, in verses 7 and verse 9, we're encouraged to keep the words of this book. 
Just like back in Revelation 1, verse 3, there was a promise of blessing to the one who, quote, reads aloud the words of this prophecy to those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Even so, at the end of the book of Revelation, Lord Jesus also says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So Revelation begins and ends with a, with a promise of blessing to all who are, will read here, and especially those who keep the words of this book. So Revelation, just like the whole Bible, it's a book to be kept. It's a book to be heeded. It's a book to be obeyed in faith. James one twenty two says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's not just a book of interesting things for us to read at, like under a glass and, and to talk about and, and to leave undone. We are to be doers of God's word. So let us make it our aim to keep or to do whatever we read here. Let us learn to make it our aim to trust God's word and to obey it in all things. And what's the end of that if we do? We'll find blessing in it. We'll find blessing. We'll find ourselves blessed in whatever we do unto God's glory when we keep his word. Even when John, think about this, remember that the scene in our text when John is tempted to fall down at the feet of this angel and worship him. What does the angel say to him in verse 8, he's, in verse 9? He says, you must not do that. Why? I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And then he adds, and with those who do what? Keep the words of this book. You know, you and I might be sitting here reading Revelation and say, well, of course, an angel would tell the apostle John. He's a fellow servant with John. John's an apostle. Very select uh, number of people got to be that, and it's none of us. Of course he'd be a fellow servant with the prophets in the Old Testament. Think about you know Moses and, and Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, but he says also those with those who keep the words of this book worship God. That angel that was so glorious and majestic that, that John almost fell at his feet to worship him, told him that he was his fellow servant, not just with him, not just with the, the prophets, his brothers, but also with everyone who keeps the words of this book. We who make it our aim to trust and, obey and keep the words of this book might be looked down upon by the world around us, but we are fellow servants with the angels in heaven and with the apostles and prophets as well. What, Think about the blessed company you keep. You don't see it. You don't feel like you're a fellow servant with the angels in heaven, but you are if you're a believer in Christ and are keeping the words of this book by the grace of God. And so we worship God alone. That's the instruction. Worship God. Don't worship angels. They're your fellow servants of Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing we read of in our text regarding this book is a warning not to add to or take away anything from it. Look at verses 18 to 19. John says, He writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. That is a very severe and stark warning. That may sound very harsh to our ears. It may sound extreme, but... I would say this, no believer in Jesus Christ will ever feel free to tamper with the holy word of of, of the King of Kings. No believer in Jesus Christ shall ever feel free to tamper with God's word. God's word is God's word. It's the word of God. 
and is to be treated as such. The Bible says in Romans 3, let, let God be true and every man a what? A liar. If God said it, that's it. There's no debate. There's no argument. You know, you, you might think to yourself, you might be asking yourself even now, well, do people ever take away or add to the words of, of the revelation of God? Constantly. In, in so many ways, I would struggle to even try to, to list them all. Think about different religions that, that add to the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church has whole different books. The Apocrypha added to Scripture. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons add to and take away Scripture and have done that ever since their beginning. You think about liberal scholars and others who deny certain things that the Bible says. What are they doing? They're taking away or seeking to take away a part of Scripture. Oh, that doesn't apply today. God doesn't think that way anymore. God is God is with the times now. You old fuddy-duddy Christians that still hold all these things. You know, we've moved past. No, we haven't moved past it. God's word is what it says. It's settled in the heavens and it's not up for debate. And there's a warning here. And I think this warning, I think it's fitting it's in the last chapter of our Bibles. It applies to Revelation, but I think it applies to the whole Bible. We don't mess with God's word. We take it, we trust it, we obey it. And that's been the way it is all through Scripture. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, Moses was told, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. Sounds very similar. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. We are not free to edit God's word, but to believe and obey it and keep it. Proverbs 30, verses 5 to 6 puts it this way. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Every word of God proves true. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And anyone who, who you know, takes away or, or undoes the least of his commandments, there's a curse placed upon them. <coughs> We don't relax, we don't even relax any of his commandments. We don't mess with God's word. We accept it and preach it and receive it and believe and obey it. So let us revere the word of God in all that it says. Let's receive whatever it says in faith. Endeavor to understand it and obey it in all things for the, for our good and for God's glory. For every word of God still proves true and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And in conclusion, the final two verses of our book, look at verses 20 to 21. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Third time he said it. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the main takeaway from the entire book, I think. I think that's the main result that we're to seek after in reading and studying it and learning it and trying to keep it, is to know that Jesus is coming soon and for us from our hearts to learn more and more to say what John says there. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. If you read Revelation, as we've said before, if you read through all these different visions and somehow you find yourself being frightened by them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ by faith for salvation, nothing in this book is meant to frighten you. It's meant to comfort and encourage you. It's meant to lead you to confess with John at the end of this book and say the same thing from a heart of faith that you might say amen to Jesus coming soon and say, come Lord Jesus. 
That's the main takeaway from this entire book. Let, let Jesus' words there when he says, Surely I'm coming soon. Let that be music to every believer's ear more and more as we see the day approaching. And let our response come to be always, Amen, come Lord Jesus, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.